0: This episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Harmel Academy of the Trades, a community of work, prayer, and study where men seek holiness through high-demand, skilled trades. It's a great way for young men to get started in life by finding God in their daily work. For more information, go to harmelacademy.org.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my pillar co-founder and festival-bound friend, Ed Condon. Ed, you are going, if I recall correctly, this afternoon to a festival of some kind. Is that right? Do I understand that correctly? You're making an appearance at... Are you headlining this festival, Ed?
0: <laughs> Most definitely not. No. Uh, I I don't know if you call it a festival. I am hoping, assuming this show's recording goes to plan and assuming the rest of the world behaves itself in the interim i'm hoping to knock off early today and to take my wife and child to a local county fair semi-local county fair a
1: semi-local um, county fair does that yeah, mean i, mean, that you I live if... in
0: the urban sprawl more or at least the suburban sprawl so you know a, a properly local county fair would would be terrible but it, it's it's local enough i can get there within 90 minutes let's say
1: okay so you're going to drive to someone else's county for their county fair
0: Yes. And it's a particular county fair that I've, I've gone to many times over okay. the years. And it is it is the perfect size, J.D. I mean, it's, I, I, when I tell people that this is the fair from Charlotte's Web, everyone just kind of rolls their eyes at me. But I mean, it is. It's the right size. Like, it's not some sprawling big state fair that, you know, is on tarmac and you have to go across. Like, it's on a county fairground. Like, that's where it is. And it's all on grass. And I mean, yeah, there's the sort of carny corner where, you know, you can compete for crappy stuffed animals and stuff like that but most of it is livestock and produce displays and competitions they've got you know a music stand they've got excellent barbecue um it, it is it's just wonderful it is it's one of those things that i can't quite believe is is there and usually there's an adoration tent too which i find wonderful and surprising an in what adoration I is a tent. Second.
1: wow that's amazing
0: yeah it, it, it's really cool. It's a great county fair. And anyway, so I have in my head, I have this idea that I'm going to hold my nearly year old child up to livestock of various sizes and shapes. And she's going to squeal and clap with delight and everything. And there's going to be a photo of this and I'm going to treasure it forever. I, I realize that what's going to happen is we will get there. She will start crying almost immediately. She will probably deuce herself somewhere between entering the front gate and me getting in line to buy barbecue and the whole thing will be a nightmare but i'm holding on to the dream for as long <laughs> as i can that this is going to be a treasured memory.
1: <laughs> well, i'm proud of you for that. We had this past weekend this is related. I this we had this past weekend our parish festival, the Marian festival at, at our parish, a festival for the blessed virgin Mary and um and it was a uh, uh, it was really wonderful. Um, there were all kinds of um, bounce houses, which my children, especially my son Max, love a lot, and carnival games and um, bingo, which um, I, a lot of people look down on bingo, but that's because they don't understand how much fun bingo actually is, especially if you have a good caller. Um, <laughs> and uh, the, the, the bingo caller is everything. And if you have a caller who really knows what they call the bingo lingo, then uh then the games can be um can be quite fun and you can have a lot of sort of call and response and things like that. So there was that there was both a band and a kind of indie sort of singer and uh and I had the duty, you know, everybody at the school or what have you has to volunteer for the fair in some way or do something. And I was sort of signed up. I just got a notification from someone who works at the parish saying that I was signed up to be the MC of the parish festival, which meant that I had to there was a stage, the band was on and I had to go up and make announcements about where the bathrooms were and what time this would be starting and that would be starting and introduce the band and stuff like that. And so question. Yes.
0: Um, your, your selection for the role of master ceremonies for this particular event. Were you, were you asked to do this because of your prominence in the local Catholic community or was it just sort of somebody has got to do it? JD hasn't done anything yet. So you're stuck with it.
1: I don't, <laughs> I don't think I was asked to do it because of my prominence in the local Catholic community. I think I was asked to do it because I'm known in the parish to be loud. And um, and there was a thought. Okay, I was wondering was if like, way. we're going
0: to get, guys, we're going to get J.D. Flynn to tell no, everyone no, where the portable by, crappers are. And that's no going to be means, like a, a by draw. No means.
1: I got my, you know, the nice thing is I get my parent, you know, every if your kid goes to school, you have to volunteer. And so I got my parent volunteer hours all, all squared away. And I got to kind of, I felt really cool because I got to sort of, um, Wait,
0: if your kid goes to school, you have to volunteer?
1: Yeah. This, yeah, of course. What? Well, the school is an apostolate of the parish, and that doesn't just mean that we're consumers there, but that we're, um, you know, a part of consumers, the Consumers, if you're paying starts, tuition, you're a
0: customer, right?
1: Well, no, we're not customers. We're... The school is a communitarian effort of the parish, which is supported both by tuition and also by the regular tithing of parishioners. But everyone who's connected to the parish should be supportive of the school, but parents are especially expected to contribute to the efforts of the school. So any Catholic school I've ever seen, parents have a certain number of volunteer hours that they have to complete. And I got my hours done, you know, from the stage. You didn't I was
0: unaware of this. Oh, goody, I have all this to look forward to.
1: Okay. <laughs> I mean, you can... There are lots of things you can do to volunteer. A few weeks ago... Well, maybe it was a while ago now, but a few weeks ago they had a sort of dad's, it was like it was called like Handy Dads Saturday or something like that, and uh, and it was an invitation for dads to come with their tool belts or kits or what have you, boxes to come and fix stuff for the day. There's a long list of things that had to be fixed. And Mrs. Flynn is extremely handy. I mean, Mrs. Flynn knows how to fix everything. She's got like, got a lot of tools. I don't even know what a lot of them are, but she does, and... And she thinks about projects she wants to do at her house, and then she does not And she wanted to go, but she thought
0: that it would be emasculating for you if she turned no, up in a flannel shirt, dressed like Bob Vila, no. and just started keeping she the family end up. She wasn't concerned about that actually at all. Funny you should say that. She was concerned
1: that uh, that the dads would not be too keen to have a mom there that she might sort of, um, qu- you know, quash their vibe, as it were. So she and you know, so she didn't. She didn't go, but that's a way that you can fulfill your hours. There's sort of room, uh, room mom or dad, you know these kinds of things. So anyway, I got all mine, all mine done. But the really cool thing that I didn't tell you, is, so we had a great time. It was great. But the really cool thing is that my niece, Elin, uh entered the the pie baking contest and she won. And she's that's good. Yeah, she's like um, Elin's probably eleven or something like that, and she is a baker and she entered that contest and she nailed it. And I was super excited. And because I was MC, I got to announce elan's pie victory over all the other pies from the stage like it was a real it was a moment of sort of it was no doyle rules moment for me really is what it was
0: i am glad um, i mean I'm, in, I'm strongly in favor of pie um yeah. so this is this is good uh did you did you as master of ceremonies have have any kind of right over the pies
1: <laughs> well you know i did i did check in so there this this could you contest. exercise
0: a sort of feudal you know quality <laughs> right, exactly. control
1: that's exactly right of sort of premade gooy boost or something no um i did uh i did um i did check in on the baking so the baking contest had many categories pie cake cookie gluten free maybe there were others I don't know the details but there were different different categories and uh, and so I did check in at one point, and And I, the reason I went over to the baking, to the room in the school where they were, the, the judges were judging the baking contest was precisely so that I could lift some baked goods, you know. Um, and I thought that being MC would give me that privilege, but uh, they did not mess around in there. I was kind of very quickly sort of ushered out, hello, thanks for wasting our time, you know, good to see you. Um, but they were they were taking it really quite seriously. And so I had to I had to excuse myself, and I didn't get an opportunity to, 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 to steal anything. And if I did, I obviously wouldn't admit it right now.
0: Right. No, for sure. Uh, well, I, I've, I, I'm i sorry that I, I would have thought having having the role of Master of you would have some sort of— I was not lord of the festival, Ed. Please understand. I was just fulfilling my hours as much as the parents sure, at the were. Sure, it's a ministry of card, service, right? absolutely. Right? I mean, just, Servum you know. servorum day. But I, I just, you know, I, I thought maybe you might, you know, get a look in. That's all. Uh, I, uh, if What's I... What's it all for if there's not pie? That's all I'm saying.
1: If I took a muffin or a cupcake while they were judging it, I certainly
0: wouldn't admit it on the show. I see. Was there a chain of office involved? <laughs>
1: no, there was, there wasn't. I did Did have you get a, a hat? Well, this is what I did have, is I did have uh, I did have, you know, I MC events for relatively frequently for like fundraisers and things like this. If people are having a dinner, they ask me to come and make self-deprecating jokes and keep the thing moving. And, uh, and some people get asked to be keynotes. Some people get asked to come and keep the, keep the thing moving. Uh, And I am events relatively frequently. And usually, you know, you dress up nicely. So I assumed I, I was trying to figure out like, what would be a cool, a cool outfit for this, but they gave me a a staff t-shirt. So the problem with that is that anytime I wasn't on the stage, people saw my staff t-shirt, and uh, were asking me questions about like where the where they could find a lost child or where they could find the soda tent or the beer tent or something like this and to be perfectly honest, I didn't know anything, so I was I think a bitter disappointment to a great many people
0: I'm sorry to hear that that's unexpected. I would have thought you would you would know these things <laughs> as master of the fair i you you thought. You thought wrong. I was only master of the ceremonial
1: aspects of the fair which is to say that I I see you were a figurehead. The band it turned out you were out... empty
0: of power of real power.
1: Right, this was a constitutional fair really and uh and a constitutional a, a constitutional mess fair and I and I was, you know, merely a figurehead just conferring honors upon people and these sorts of things. The band was um I didn't know this but the band manager was a permanent deacon in our diocese and the band consisted of his like His son, I think his daughter-in-law, his wife, and then some of their friends. And it actually sort of started out. This was quite cool. This band that played our thing, they played, you know, a couple of sets. And they played like sort of, uh, um, I guess you might say oldies, sort of rock and roll kind of music. Um, They started out as the sort of um, Sunday evening mass band of a parish not too far from here. And then they got asked to play their own parish festival 40 years ago. And they did it. And they've been playing stuff ever since with obviously cycling and new members and stuff these are sort of the uh a new version of the band of course but uh but still nevertheless that was um that was uh that was that was quite cool
0: very nice yeah
1: the new main street singers is what i wanted to say i wanted to say they were sort of the new main street singers but i don't don't know 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 who those are but i don't know if you'll get that reference but someone out there is going to get that reference this was the new main street singers
0: anywho is this the kind of um, private humor that you employ while you're being Master of ceremonies.
1: no one you never make makes references
0: a, that no one gets and, no
1: one can never make an inside joke from the um, from the stage but oh, this you is can. My, you
0: just have to be there only to amuse yourself right this, this, is this is probably why I don't get invited this to- is my desk
1: you know so from my desk I can make a, a, an inside joke and not even an inside joke a joke about a semi-popular movie that some people will get the new Main Street Singers okay I'm not surprised you don't get invited to do these thing because a lot of it is just relentless positivity you know and, oh no, um, no, no, right. no!
0: That is not my forte. Right. It's
1: it's not it's it's not unlike hosting this show. Um, the people you're speaking with aren't listening, uh, and um, and uh, uh, you know it's a lot of waiting around. So it's it's you know there are some similarities.
0: Fair enough. Um, God bless you for so doing. <laughs>
1: okay. Well, uh, Ed. Um, there's a lot happening in the news, and some of it we know about, and some of it we don't know about. In the United States right now, all over the headlines are um, um, stories about migrants being effectively moved to different parts of the country, and um, we're not going to talk about that. The reason we're not going to talk about it is because we are doing the show rundown. We sort of recognize that neither of us feels sufficiently informed about this topic to talk about it, but we wanted to at least sort of acknowledge that that's in the news, so it didn't seem like a glaring omission that we weren't talking about it, but we we are going to i suspect get up to speed to it and and i suspect that there are catholic it seems obvious to me actually that there are some catholic um implications to the to this
0: uh i'm sure there story. are yeah i just yeah I, I i honestly just haven't been following this yeah um, i i see the um various expressions and representations bubble across my news feeds, but um, I have not. I have not followed the details, and I'm certainly not in any position to make any kind of informed critique or commentary. I'm, I'm in possession solely of um, strong and utterly uninformed opinions, and that's not helpful. That's to not
1: anyone. what we do here. Believe that's it or not, not. Do. that's not what we do here. Strong and moderately formed opinions are what we do here. Speaking yes. of which. Um, one story that we have been following—so we'll talk about that at some point down the road—but one story that we have been following that kind of came to a conclusion this week is a story that you and I have been doing reporting on since February, um, and uh, and it came to a conclusion this week, and that is the sort of situation of the Diocese of Arecibo, um, Puerto Rico. And uh, Ed, just at a sort of 30,000-foot level, what um, has been going on in Arecibo?
0: Um, well, the, the rudest of thumbnail sketches would be that in March, the Holy Father— Summarily deposed the bishop, Bishop Daniel Fernandez. He sacked him. There was a a line that appeared in the Daily Bulletino back in March that just said he had been relieved of his pastoral duties with immediate effect. And there was no explanation given. There was no indication that um, he had done something wrong or he was unwell or anything else. Uh, But the only thing we knew is he had not resigned, he'd been fired. And no one knew why. And at
1: first that surprised us because the removal of a bishop, like, you know, under those circumstances is just unusual. But we, we started covering the story, digging into the story, talking with people, and we discovered that Bishop Fernandez, according to uh, sort of according to his own account of things, himself didn't know why he had been removed That's from right. office.
0: The, the sort of quasi-Nuncio to Puerto Rico, um, the apostolic representative... Uh, Bishop fernandez said had told him that he needed to resign. This was, I think, back in December, if memory serves. That he had to resign. The Pope was demanding his resignation because he had been disobedient to the Pope and broken communion with his brother bishops, um, both of which are effectively charges of schism, uh, as near as I can tell. And he had no idea what this was about, according to his own thing. And he asked the nuncio to say, "I don't understand. How have I been disobedient to the Pope? I, I don't tell me what I did. What did I do wrong?" And And this was, we got some
1: letters back and forth. Yeah. We obtained some letters back and forth between Fernandez and the nuncio ahead of his removal, ahead of the bishop's removal, in which the nuncio is saying, you have been disobedient, you have not been in communion with your brother bishops, and Fernandez is saying, well, can you explain this to me? I'm not going to resign sort of out of nothing, because the nuncio was saying at that point you need to resign, and Fernandez was saying, I don't know what this is about. There had been some tension between the bishop over, um, and the other bishops in Puerto Rico over vaccines, not because Fernandez was telling people not to get vaccinated, but because... While the, many of the bishops of Puerto Rico signed on to a statement that they had developed themselves, which was a pretty strong admonition to be vaccinated.
0: Um, it, it basically said that it was a, there was a moral imperative.
1: From Fernandez's perspective, he thought it went too far as compared to the CDF statement of last year, which said that um which said that uh, there is a, a, a real duty to be vaccinated and if if one is not going to be vaccinated there's a duty to sort of take on other responsibilities to ensure not not to spread and things like that but fernandez felt that he had written a letter that basically copied the ideas of the cdf and that the other bishops had gone too far so there was a tete-a-tete about that but he was not even under getting a clear answer about whether that was the thing that led him to be told by the by the apostolic De- delegate to,
0: uh, to to resign is that right That's right. Okay. (laughs) I'm laughing because I was trying to give a very brief summary and you've stopped and filled in all of the detail. I was trying to leave out details. I'm sorry. It's fine. Anyway. So what he basically said to the nuncio, and he, he did identify that, um, the, the vaccine statements, uh, he also said, you know, there he'd had an argument with the other bishops of Puerto Rico effectively because he was not sending his seminarians to an interdiocesan seminary on the island. He was sending them to a diocese to a seminary in Spain. Um, and he said, you know, I I don't understand. If, if this is what this is all about, I can move my seminarians. It's fine. I was, you know, I just had some questions about the situation there. Um, he didn't really understand. He just said, you know, I, I can't resign for being disobedient to the Pope if you don't tell me what it is I'm supposed to have done. And the response from the Apostolic Delegate was, well, if you refuse to resign, that's you being disobedient to the Pope, which right. is an absurd kind of KGB-style logic. And... You know, he obviously he didn't resign, and so eventually he was just fired. And he still does not know why. He's still not been given a reason, according to himself. He has, as he put it, not had any kind of canonical process whatsoever. Nothing akin to a Vosestes investigation or process. He has not even, as he put it, received the same kind of process you would use for you know removing the pastor of a parish. And he's the bishop, and you know, heir successor to the apostles of a diocese. So, um since then this all happened in March, since then he's been trying very hard, we've been told, to get a meeting with the Pope. He's been unsuccessful. He dropped off a long sort of canonical petition which he hoped to get to the Pope, and I I'm not sure if he's managed to get that in front of the Pope or not, but basically saying Look, can I please have some kind of due process? I don't understand you know, I'm I'm a bishop without a diocese now, I don't know what I'm supposed to have done wrong, so I don't understand what it is I'm supposed to, you know, be doing right now. But anyway, that's that's all according to him. Come to nothing thus far. So that's sort of the background of the last six months. And then on on Wednesday, um, the Pope appointed a new bishop for the diocese, a um, uh, an auxiliary of the Archdiocese of the island and the Archdiocese of San Juan, who is you know now going to sort of step in there. And I mean, it's if you like, in in one sense a, a a closed bracket on the event because you know the bishop has been removed, a new bishop has now been appointed. But I mean, it's not. It's not over in the sense that, you know, there were 30,000 local Catholics who signed a petition following Fernandez's removal saying, we loved our bishop. He was a great bishop. What's he supposed to have done wrong? That this has been done to him. And why can't he have due process? And those 30,000 Catholics are not going to go away. Um, right. and the new guy who has been, to be clear, welcomed by the by the same people who protested the against... The Fernandez
1: supporters, yeah.
0: Yeah, Fernandez supporters have welcomed the appointment of the new guy that said, you know, he's our new bishop, of course, you know, we we welcome him, we love him, we look forward to having him, all of that. But they also said, he's frankly got a job of work on his hands, that, you know, the diocese is very wounded because they've, you know, they had their, as they put it, they had their shepherd and their father taken away from them for no apparent reason. Yeah, And, you know, the new bishop whose last name is now escaping me. Um, he's got some work to do because he, what he doesn't have is unlike the apostolic delegate, unlike the Vatican figure, he will not have ha- figure that's Figaro. it figure. Yeah. Um, he will not have the, the option of just sort of ignoring these questions that, you know, when, when he is installed, people will be asking him, you're a Bishop now. Can you tell us what happened? What's got, what happened in our diocese? What happened to us? And he won't be able to just sort of you know smile and nod and move on. You know he's yeah. gonna he's gonna have to face these questions and he may not have the answers, but he will at least have to to deal with them. And I mean, it is one of the things that the this sort of supporters group of Fernandez uh, said is that you know the the way their former bishop was treated is not at all synodal, is not at all of the mode that Pope Francis uh, proposes and exhorts the church to adopt. And they are continuing to ask that he be given some sort of reckoning, some sort of closure, because they said, otherwise this can just happen to other bishops. And that doesn't seem right to them. And I have to say, I see their point. Yeah, I I was
1: thinking about this because there are people who are saying that, but I've also heard from a fair number of people, as we have covered this situation, who say, well, look, the Roman pontiff is the Roman pontiff, um, and um, a diocesan bishop is not the Roman pontiff, and the Pope has the power to appoint and um remove one who has the power to appoint has the power to remove so the pope has the power to appoint and remove a diocesan bishop and that's what the pope chose to do and you know that's the pope's prerogative and 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 I hear it's that It's a very
0: Vatican 1 conception it's of the very
1: Episcopate. well that's where I was I hear that it is a very sort of strong um sort of pap- pap- papal ecclesiology and one that um you know is a, is an understandable perspective. I I think uh so we I think we've talked about the sort of theology Of that before, the sort of theological response to that before. The people who are critical of the Pope's removal say, well, look, the Second Vatican Council um, really affirmed sort of the authenticity of the diocesan bishop as a successor to the apostles in his own right, and as the principle of unity in his own diocese, and as enjoying a real and true and authentic sort of charism of of leadership, of governance here. And one does not, even if one has the authority to Uh, remove someone from such a position, one does not exercise that authority um, lightly, that it is the kind of thing that one ought to um, rather seriously weigh before acting upon that one ought to sort of be uh, as prudent as one can possibly be about because of the significance of the Episcopal office, that one of the significant themes of Vatican II was a sort of reassertion of the identity of bishop as successor to the apostles, so that any sense that the bishop was um, that, which which had sort of there's a, there was a sense that sort of post trend and especially maybe sort of post um, Vatican one um, a notion of the bishop as a functionary of Rome as a sort of a va- as a sort branch of branch manager of Rome, a branch manager had crept into the way the church did business not that the church sort of officially taught anything but what is true that the bishop is a successor to the apostles and these things that a notion of sort of bishop as branch manager had had crept into the way the church did business, and the way that the church thought about herself, and the way that the church thought, of, you know, um, talked about these things, such that even such that the episcopacy was more often emphasized as a function instead of an order, right? So that the primary identity of the episcopacy, in some places, and some in some conversations, was about uh, being entrusted with a, a role rather than sort of being configured to Christ in a new way through the fullness of sacramental ordination. And Vatican II tried to sort of say, "Hey, hey." Let's go back. Let's look at how the fathers of the church looked at the episcopacy. Let's see the way in which they see sort of the profundity of being a successor to the apostles. That's not something light that we should take lightly at all. And then think about how our way of being and living needs to just, needs just a course correction in light of this thing, which we have always known and believed. And, uh, and so, um, the kind of pushback to the, well, the Pope's the Pope and he can do it is, um, is it's a very this, old way of being church, JD. Right, is the sense that that's a sort of very old way of being um, is of being church and not reflective of the sort of reemphasis of the Second um, Vatican Council. And I was thinking about that in terms of kind of well, what has the church done since then, and 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 what has that sort of looked like since then. And I was thinking about a bishop, an Australian bishop, a very sort of interesting and um, and uh, and I guess we can say weird Australian bishop. Yes, sir.
0: I was going to say, before we before we go down under, um, for the example, I think I know which one you're going All to right.
1: You do, because we put in the show rundown before the show.
0: Yeah. I, I would like to offer um, a Vatican I perspective, if you like, on the difficulty or extreme uh, sensitivity of the Pope unilaterally acting to unseat a bishop.
1: All right, let's get to it. The spirit of Vatican I, Dr. Ed Condon.
0: Okay. Um, are you... Do you know who I mean by uh, Bishop James Duggan? No. Okay. Well, so he was
1: right from Arkansas. A bunch of kids. No. Okay.
0: No, Bishop James Duggan was the fourth. Got in
1: trouble for being a bad person.
0: No, Uh, Bishop James Duggan was the fourth bishop of Chicago. Uh, Before it was an archdiocese, it was a diocese, and he was the fourth bishop of Chicago. He was uh, installed as bishop in eighteen fifty nine. And he was thirty-four years old, which, That's pretty well, you might think, is a young and healthy age to embark upon an Episcopal career. It's actually too um, young now. It is too young now. You've you got to uh, be
1: thirty-five to be. You've got to be what? Thirty-five to be a diocesan?
0: I believe so. Uh, anyway, so well, the problem was he was he was given um, a diagnosis ten years later, uh, according to the medical lights of the time. He was declared to be, and this is this is the actual title given to it hopelessly insane
1: hopelessly insane yeah he was he was a couple of things one great name for a high school punk band yes two how about that
0: yeah uh, but as near as i can gather bishop duggan was not you know a a little anxious or a little depressive he He was was insane in the membrane yeah he was he was um really 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 disturbed by all accounts (laughs) and he was sent to a mental institution in in rural Illinois by mental institution. I think he, I think he had a house basically with some religious sisters who looked after him. Um, But I mean, he was unable to function and he, he ended up in a sort of canonical catch 22 situation, which was he was too hopelessly insane to place a valid act of resignation because he lacked the mental freedom and capacity to do so. But the Pope Pius IX didn't consider himself to have the power to remove him from office because he hadn't done anything wrong. That he was, you know, to depose him effectively. Pius the ninth was of the opinion. Well, he has committed no canonical crime. He has not been, you know, derelictual of his office. I huh. can't, in, I can't penally remove him absent a reason to do it. So what he did was he appointed a coadjutor, uh, to basically govern the diocese of Chicago in his place. And I think he actually had to appoint two or three in the end because the coadjutors kept dying. And because Bishop Duggan was so young, he kept living, um, even though he was very unwell. And it was some time. It was, um, I'm trying to remember how long it was, but I think it was like more than a decade uh, until Duggan was sufficiently recovered that he could place a valid act of resignation and they could get a new proper Bishop of Chicago installed. So, I mean, for all of the sort of maximalist papal power mentality this is sad
1: this is very sad
0: it is but again i offer this as an example of even the sort of quote-unquote church of vatican I, the maximally papist church the ultra ultra montane view of the pope and the bishops as basically totally under his authority and everything else even then Pius the ninth said effectively i can't remove even someone who is hopelessly insane from office because he is a bishop and he has a dignity and a right and a stability in that office and absent a cause that gives me reason to depose him i can't i can't take what is essentially a penal action against him because he's having a health problem
1: yeah i mean it wouldn't be appropriate to take a penal action against him and no but that's what being removed from office is it's a penalty sure it's a private uh, privation Privation of of office office is is a penalty. penalty that's right yeah. And, you know, part of the reason, interestingly, part of the reason why we don't see that now, that privation of office is a penalty, is because in the church's legal system, even the removal of a pastor from his office is considered to be a very serious matter. So there is the last section of the Code of Canon Law is a specific legal process that's developed for the purpose of the removal of a pastor. And the the diocesan bishop who can appoint a pastor can indeed remove a pastor, and he can remove a pastor for a variety of reasons he loses the respect and he, he loses effectively the ability to be effective as a pastor because he no longer enjoys a good reputation among his own people. Even if he, even if that's not sort of through any fault of his own, or he he is sort of not capable in other ways of administering the thing, or he commits a crime or these kinds of things. There are a variety of reasons for which a pastor can be removed, but. The the importance of the stability of of this office, which exercises spiritual care, is regarded as so important in the church's law that a very particular process has to be removed. You want to remove the parochial vicar, the assistant pastor of a uh, the assistant priest in a parish. You sign a paper, right? You want to move, remove the deacon. You sign a paper. Um, you want to remove um, the person who is given like entrusted with spiritual the care, care of, of the souls. Faithful, the care of souls. The pastor. There's a process. There's a real. Sort of um, formal process that has to be undertaken, and there are a few reasons for that. One, um, the, the the sort of perceived importance of stability in office in, in in offices which involve the care of souls. Two, the reality that a person who exercises the care of souls in a leadership position of the church inevitably will find people who are happy, even if he's perfectly fine, inevitably will find people who are happy with him and people who are unhappy with him. If you look in the file of anybody who's been a pastor for more than five minutes, there are letters which says that he is himself the second coming and letters which say that he will single-handedly destroy the church. It's just the nature of the gig. And so um, the reason why the church establishes a process for those who have been given the care of souls is to ensure that um, there is a sort of fair look at their sort of le- their status in leadership um, which is not sort of colored um, by the sort of loudest voices. There's another reason, which is that the office, offices which involve the care of souls necessarily require uh, a kind of prophetic exercise of um, teaching and governing authority. The pastor of a parish is—the the laws is the juridic representative of the parish. That means that if the parish thinks it's being sort of unfairly taxed by the diocese, for example, that the diocesan assessment is way too high, the pastor has a right to— advocate, and in, in some ways a duty, um, to advocate on behalf of his community for the protection of their rights in canon law. But if the person whose job it is to advocate for rights can only hold the office subject to sort of the goodwill of the bishop with no process, you can see how that would sort of put a damper all the more so than already exists on the prospect of sort of vindicating those rights. So that's a reason. And then the, in terms of teaching authority, the obligation to um, to teach prophetically. and And of course, that unquestionably means sort of filial respect for the legitimate sort of superiors and those kinds of things. But if the bishop sort of just doesn't like the preaching of the pastor or thinks it's sort of not in line with the kind of preaching that he would be doing or something like that, if it's not sort of wrong um, or scandalous or something like that, um, the, the the law holds the idea that the pastor has a right to kind of a fair shake to make sure that he's not sort of just being, um, not just being sort of um drummed out of this leadership position because the bishop in a certain way doesn't like the cut of his jib. And so that's pastors. And the church's sort of tradition with regard to the removal of bishops is 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 an emphasis on that tradition. In fact, so much so that Pope Francis himself has promulgated uh, a, a set of sort of procedural norms called come una madre amorevola. Oh, would, would you say that word, Ed? <sighs>
0: amorevola. Uh,
1: Amorevole. Amore Thank you. For, you know, for With the, the soul loving sake heart of, of a mother. With the loving heart of a mother for the sake of having a process by which a bishop could sort of defend his rights before, before he might be removed, although that process has not really been, been used. So clearly the church has this sense. As you say, Bishop Duggan, I think, is a super interesting story and a sad one, and this thing existing in law. Um, we're going to talk about a more recent example of this, um, but first we will be uh, right back. Ed, this week's episode uh, of the Pillar Podcast is brought to us by the Harmel Academy of the Trades, a community of work, prayer, and study where um, uh, young men can um, go to uh, study, not only sort of to acquire trades, um, you know, skilled trades that are in high demand in today's economy, but also can at the same time be formed spiritually and intellectually um, in a sort of community, uh, a, a community of, of prayer and, and desiring holiness.
0: Yes, I I, I waxed quite lyrical about this last week and i'll be honest with you i almost feel kind of bad about um, having harmel as a as a repeat sponsor of the podcast because it's hard for me to distance sort of the points they want to make from my general enthusiasm about the entire idea <laughs> of their project like i really sincerely like if there had been a harmel academy open and available to me when i was 18 19 i would have gone i believed as a young man leaving school, I thought you should have a trade. Like that was the thing to do. Like you should know how to do something. You should know how to do a thing. You should know how to do work. And so I went and I got, as I mentioned last year, I you know, I went and trained as a chef, but I mean there was no personal and spiritual formation walking with me in that process, quite the reverse. Um, and had I had this sort of option open to me, I think it would have been I would have grabbed it with both hands. I just think it's such a great idea. I think it's such a great premise. I think that It is both for, you know, everything that you've said about, you know, we're talking about real trades that can lead to a real, you know, can lead to apprenticeships and real, you know, a real career, a viable way of providing for one's family and and self throughout life. There's that. But also, I think just as a presupposing nothing about what you want to do with the rest of your life, as a period and discipline of your life to learn um, intellectually the practice of a trade, to learn the discipline of the labor and to be formed to appreciate the Catholic sense of both of those things at the same time I mean for a year or two at the age of eighteen or nineteen, I just think it's such a it's such a great idea um the the, the temptation nowadays is for people to sort of have definite life plans and you know to hyper specialize and if you want to be a journalist then you have to edit the the high school newspaper and you have to study journalism as an undergrad and you have to get a specialist. Postgrad degree in journalism and you need to have you know we've basically claricized every profession to the point where it's like you have to know what you want to do from an early age you have to go through three levels of seminary to get there and you know there's no room for anything else outside of that And i just think this is you know on the sort of con- social conveyor belt we've constructed through education to have a point where it's like no we should you should actually stop and reflect about not just constant education for the sake of education but work the dignity of work, the dignity of labor, I think is a is a really important thing.
1: Last night, my son asked me, "He's we're getting ready for bed, and he said, Dad, why do you like to work? I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you You corrected him immediately. No, I didn't, because I do love working, right? And I, and I said to him, I said, look, um, we talked before about how we're made in the image and likeness of God, and um, God is uh, creative. God um, creates things, and he orders them, and when God gives us um, the obligation of um, dominion and ordering things and the capacity for creating things. That's part of what it means to live in the image and likeness of God. So I like working because it helps me to be like God. Um, And he, uh, he was a little bit taken aback that I suggested that, but um, but it is true, and um, and and it's exactly what you say. Work has dignity because it's it, it it's part of what it means for us that we are created in the image and likeness of God. And Harmel Academy of the Trades aims to form young men in um, w- with a with a kind of manual genius, a kind of a creative and ordering capacity um, that allows them, as you say, to make a living to support their families, and at the same time to be formed to understand the Christ, the profound Christian dignity. Of uh, of that work. Um, so if you are interested in Harmel Academy of the Trades, which offers spiritual formation, intellectual formation, and skilled trades training through hand-on lab and project-based learning, um, check it out at harmelacademy.org. That's harmelacademy.org. All right, Ed, we are back. And so we have been talking about kind of Spiritual care of souls and the removal of office and how customarily that is regarded in the church as a very serious thing and the church has legal provisions related to that. And you talked about this this uh this very interesting and sad story of this diocesan bishop in um in Chicago in the eighteen hundreds. And um I was thinking about a more recent um situation in in uh, uh down under, as we say, the um the the uh the situation of uh a man named Bill Morris, Bishop Bill Morris, um who had been um from 1992 until 2011, the Bishop of Toowoomba, Australia. Do you know anything about Toowoomba, Australia? Uh yes. First of all, they obviously get knocked down and they get up again, and you're never going to keep them down. Oh,
0: that's. I'm disappointed in you. That was. No, you're me. not. No, I, you're I, not. I, I, no, it if wasn't. that were about anywhere other than Australia, I'd be upset on their behalf. <laughs> I, that's not. That's not cool. Okay. Um, no, I know it is a. It is a relatively rural diocese. It's got. I, I believe I'm right in saying some some number of Catholics living there, and uh, also some population <laughs> of really kangaroos, here, <laughs> <laughs> presumably. No, I don't know a great deal about the demographics of the Diocese of Toowoomba. However, I do have some familiarity with the case of Bishop Morris, so we, well, we can it talk an, about
1: that. Well, it's a, it's a diocese in Queensland, Australia. That's what we need to know. It's a small rural diocese in Queensland, Australia. Bishop uh, Bill Morse was appointed the bishop there in 1992. In 2006, the bishop released a pastoral letter calling for the prospect of the ordination of women. Um, at the same time, that which is uh, which, of course, uh, flies in the face of Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, um, uh, um, a, a document of Pope Saint John Paul II, which said that the Church has no power to ordain women to the priesthood. So um, Bishop L. Morris releases this pastoral letter, which effectively repudiates Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, and uh, at the same time begins advocating for. Um, a model of lay leadership in his diocese that is perceived by some people to sort of um, undermine the hierarchical constitution of the church and the hierarchical structure of the church, and, um, and, and then just starts doing some other things that are sort of strange. He, he changes the diocesan sort of clerical dress from clerical clothing to shirt and tie, and he buys them all these ties that have a diocesan crest on them and um, and these kinds of things. And, and and there are things happening in Tawamba. There's a sense that may, that uh, the bishop has not been orthodox on other matters of um, of the Church's sexual and medical morality and uh, and other things like this. So an apostolic visitation is uh, called for Tawamba as these things reach the congregation for bishops, and it becomes clear that there's a problem about this. And I should say that part of the reason why I know about this is because my former boss, Archbishop Charles Chaput, Conducted the apostolic visitation, although I was not involved in it in any way whatsoever, and I don't even think I've ever talked with him about it directly, but in as much as I recall at the moment. But this apostolic visitation happens in 2007, and the idea is let's go down, let's send someone who's neutral, who's not sort of the Archbishop of Brisbane, who is the Metropolitan of Bishop Bill Morris and knows him for better or for worse and has for quite some time. Um, Let's send someone who is not. uh, even from the country um and therefore may have their own set of biases or opinions um but let's send someone who um you know speaks the language and can talk with the people and who at that time you know has a uh, a good reputation in rome and uh, and see uh what we can learn and so Shapu went down there in two thousand seven and after that Shapu wrote a report, the contents of which I really don't know, but after which there was um correspondence between uh, Bishop Morris and the Holy See for several years, in which after the apostolic visitation, the Holy See said, in as much as I understand it, Bishop, these are the things that we understand are good happening in your diocese. These are the things that are happening in your diocese, which are in need of reform. Will you reform these things? And um, uh, the bishop wrote back and explained, well, here's why I don't need to reform those things crikey and whatnot. I don't know if he wrote crikey, but you get the idea. So he writes these things. The Holy See writes back and says, thank you, Bishop, for your opinion, but after considered reflection on your opinion, these are the things which need to be reformed in your diocese, and will you reform them? And they go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. It becomes clear that uh, by 2011 that this is not going to work, and and it seems kind of clear that the Holy See is planning to uh, remove Bishop Morris from his diocese when he resigns. He is only 67. He says he's resigning, but he hasn't um, Oh, uh, he is retiring, but he has not resigned of his own volition. Nevertheless, he is retiring. So, in other words, he—I anu- I said that wrong. He, he announces that he is retiring, but not choosing to resign. In other words, he's suggesting that the Holy See is going to remove him. And indeed, the next day, the Holy See formally removes him from pastoral care of the diocese, and this becomes a whole thing. But it did have to happen. The Holy See did eventually decide that they had to remove him. That's the prerogative of the Roman Pontiff, and in this case, the Roman Pontiff decided it was a necessary exercise of power. But what I find interesting is these years, effectively four or five years of back and forth and back and forth before this happens, in which the principal effort of the Holy See is to sort of call Bishop Morris to um, uh, conversion on issues which the Holy Father judges he needs conversion on, or to sort of administrative conversion and to a change of his way of life, to call him to reform rather than a sort of, um, this is not working, you're out. And, um, you know, you might call that dialogue, but there's a real um a back and forth, a back and forth, an exchange of views um between a person who is in power and could exercise that power at any moment and someone who is in a lesser position of power and is subject to the to you know to the Roman pontiff. But there's an exchange of views, a back and forth, and we're talking about this. And then eventually um the Holy See announces that he's been removed. But I find that juxtaposing that with what's happened in Arecibo points out at the very least how unusual what has happened in Arecibo is in the history of the church.
0: Oh, people who are found guilty of deliberately concealing Child abuse in their diocese aren't summarily removed from office in this way. They are given, you know, the metaphorical bottle of brandy and the pearl-handled revolver and, you know, allowed to take the gracious way out and resign themselves, not be removed. You, you flag a situation where a bishop was effectively found to be in repeated and contum- um material heresy yeah, mm-hmm.
1: and right. was
0: eventually removed from office for that. But, yeah, in Arcewa, we have a bishop who doesn't understand why he's been removed, Hasn't been told, been, and again, as as he put it, hasn't even received the due process that is required for the removal of a pastor of a parish. And, I mean, okay, you know, yeah, you can have the sort of bedrock ecclesiology of, you know, well, the Pope is the Pope, and he has the authority to do this, and that that is true. But and he pro- is, and he does. And he is, and he does. But the problem is... And I, I sympathize with the the friends of Bishop Daniel, as the as his supporter group in the diocese calls themselves, um, in saying that if if he doesn't receive due process, there's no reason to believe other bishops in the future will receive due process, that other shepherds could be treated this way. And I think that is the real truth because it sets a precedent. And having instances like this are not without a power of example, that it says something. It is, if you like, a teaching moment. The exercise of this kind of governing power in the church says something about the hierarchy of the church, says something about the exercise of power in the church, says something about, for example, the relationship between the Pope and the College of Bishops, says something about the unity and the nature of the episcopate. It says something about the dignity and of office of the diocesan bishop, that all of these things are affected. By an exercise of power like this without any kind of due process without any clarity on what the cause is even and it also rather belies legal reforms that have been heavy on the pope's agenda you know it's you mentioned comina madre and that that is it does outline um the the procedures by which a bishop can be deprived of his office and it also lists the the reasons for which he can be deprived of his office now i remember when it came out in 2016 i believe i wrote a a thing at the time I was not working as a journalist I was I was working I was doing honest work as a canon lawyer at that point but I wrote a thing uh basically saying this is the 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 grounds outlined for which a bishop can be uh, removed from office are I thought alarmingly broad but even those categories are not applied in in the Arecibo case which i find deeply troubling that you know you it's hard to take well-intentioned and thoughtful legal reforms like Comino Madre or Vosestes seriously if they are selectively applied or ignored altogether in instances where there is no obvious cause and a bishop is just sort of defenestrated. Whereas on the other hand, you have bishops who would appear through a series of publicly documented incidences to have manifestly damaged the, the good of souls in their diocese, in the words of Comino Madre, and yet are not subject to any kind of process, and there appears to be no uh, intention to dialogue with the bishop in question, let alone remove them from office. And so we end up, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, perhaps ad nauseum at this point, but we we are blowing dangerously into the territory of power and governance in the church being exercised in a completely arbitrary and capricious manner. And that is not just bad management. That is bad ecclesiology. That has a spiritual impact on the life of the church. And that is, I find, deeply troubling. We talked on background a couple of weeks ago with the, with a, just I mean a
1: conversation that the Bill had with a a European cardinal kind of on background um, a couple of weeks ago who said, you know, there is this, um, who who said there have been a lot of, I think he encapsulated a situation very well. Um, He said there have been a lot of uh, very positive sort of legal innovations um, with regard to sort of due process and the protection of rights in the church's legal system in recent years. And he cited the um, promulgation of the new book, Six of the Code of Canon Law, which you and I have spoken about at length on this show. Um, But he said at the same time, um the, there are elements of the church's sort of procedural norms at the moment, and I think he was sort of pointing towards Vos Estes Lex mundi that um that pose real challenges because he said when bishops are investigating bishops, there's a danger of a conflict of interest or a lack of due process in countries where the relationship between bishops may not be good or where bishops may have sort of personal um uh, personal issues between one another one way or another pro you know sort of for pro or, or, or con as it were and uh and uh, i think I think that reflection. I don't know how much bishops are thinking about this, to be perfectly honest. So I don't know if the removal of the Bishop of Arecebo does have this sort of sobering effect that you say, because I I suspect that there are many bishops who look at it and say, well, if he was removed, he may have done something wrong. And even listening to this show may say, well, Ed and J.D. don't have the whole story. And that may be true. There may be things in the Bishop of Arecebo's file that no one knows about. But his flock
0: have a right of justice to know what they are.
1: Right. To which we would say, well, that kind of sort of summary removal without a sort of knowledge that there, if there's some profound sort of personal failing or something like that, without knowing that is not an expression of sort of um, procedural justice or substantive justice for that matter either. Well, it's also so, scandalous. Right, it, in in a real sense, it's scandalous because it leads to speculation, you know, to sort yeah. of speculation or conclusions about about either the bishop or the the Roman Pontiff for that matter, which may not be true, right? If indeed there, are, this is a completely just action sort of for some substantial mm-hmm. reason, not manifesting that, causes its own set of problems. And so there, we're in this very... We we've, I, I, I don't want to be a broken record on this show, but we're in this very weird... <laughs> I told you before this show that I wanted one of our agenda items to be a sort of proactive conversation about something which is not kind of just um, this, but you I... You made a actually, compelling think,
0: argument for original content for this
1: Original episode. content, I did. And I believe strongly that this show should be about original content discussion about original ideas that are not sort of what we've been talking about only on the site. But We're going to have to apply apply the the principle
0: of gradualism and recognize that we're going to attain the.
1: (laughs) Right. Um, But, you know, I don't want to be a broken record about this, but we're in this very strange situation where there are ways in which the rule of law um, has been uh, actually enhanced in recent years, the promulgation of Book Six being one of them, a number of norms from the congregation uh, for the the disciplinary section of the congregation for the doctrine of faith or instructions for them um, increasing or clarifying penalties which need to be clarified with regard to things like the possession of child pornography and what that means and what it doesn't mean and even technology accountability for from coming from Rome and a real recognition of Rome of the importance of technology accountability for clerics. So there are ways in which the rule of law and the capacity of the law to address the problems of the moment is on the upswing, and there are ways in which the rule of law is becoming less uh, pervasive, and especially places like this where there's a sort of customary... Custom is a, is a good thing. Custom should, are, are not sacrosanct, and custom, there are times when we should examine the reasoning for customs and make sure we're not doing things for bad reasons, but customs can give us guidance. They can be a sort of a instruction manual of the dead, if you will. They can give us guidance on the importance of particular issues. When we look at sort of the prevailing customs, be they legal or cultural, otherwise, we can see what the, those who have come before us have valued and the, the values which they held and we can learn from that. So custom can be important. And so the sort of decline of sort of recognition of the customary way of addressing these due process questions with regard to leadership positions is problematic. Now, it would be wrong to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, never remove a diocesan bishop because the last few years have taught us anything. is That's not right, and that's not what we're saying. But it, but I think what we are saying is this example of the removal of a diocesan bishop is a place where we, we need to be coming clearer both about the expectations of a bishop that certain kinds of things are not tolerated and should not be tolerated in diocesan ministry. And at the same time, that the opportunity for a thorough and unbiased examination, which is what a judicial examination intends to be, is of critical importance um, to sort out what's true from what's not, what seems weird because we don't like it, it's not our cup of tea, and what seems weird because it's highly problematic. And sorting out the difference between what seems weird because it's not our cup of tea or the way we would have done something versus sorting out what's weird because it's highly problematic, that's a critical part of sort of governing wisdom to recognize a wise governor says, he's not doing things the way I would do them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the way he's doing things is bad. That's, a, I think, a critical part of leader of, of wisdom and leadership. And so we're seeing yeah, things on the upside, things on the downside, and really a shift in the application and and in certain ways, the meaning of canon law that um, the, the, that uh, as it applies in the life of the church and for us, whose sort of central focus of what we're doing with the pillar is good governance, we can't but say there are profound issues here that impact this issue of good governance in the life of the church, which we think is so critically important. Yep. <laughs>
0: Sorry, you went all Stevie on. Wonder there. No,
1: give me. What does that mean? I was
0: close my eyes while I was talking. Yeah, when you get onto a monologue, you kind of close your eyes and incline your head forty-five degrees up and kind of move from side to side. And you know, even if I think like you're 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 going in circles here, buddy, bring it into land. Like you've you've shut your like you're nope, you're in. It, it's happening now. <laughs> so when you know go that. all Stevie Wonder, I just kind of like okay, we'll just, we're just, we're just have to wait for the end of the song here because. Uh... Oh man, I'm sorry. You, you know, you do things too. Oh, I know. It's not
1: a criticism. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I know you. Uh, we next week we're going to have some um, totally, totally crazy original stuff on this. The end of this show, uh, during this show, uh, you guys are not even going to believe what we've got for you. But um, in the meantime, Ed, uh, what should we do now? Uh, I have a
0: game. If you, if you, oh, fancy. I know.
1: I was trying to give you a big runway for that.
0: Uh, <laughs> a giant runway. Uh, yeah, that was. You've had some really excellent transitions in the last couple of weeks um that some was not of have one of been them shockingly great uh that no that one was a little a little heavy yeah that but, was not one that one yeah but i no, i do have a game i do have a quick oh uh, you do i'd like to play I, a game i do have a quick autumnal round because because autumn formally begins next week i do have a quick autumnal round of yes yeah. or no if
1: games you like. cometh before the fall i suppose okay wow see like
0: you know. yeah 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 okay um, but yes, if you'd if you'd care to play along, uh, I, I I think the first one, given that this is what I'm hopefully going to be doing in the not too distant future, county Fairs, j d. How do you feel about them? Sure, okay. Um, what leaf- game are we playing yes or no or good better rest. How does this work? Yes or no. You have to okay. you have to simply say yes or no. you give me give me your absolutely reflexive, unfiltered answer. Um, yes, okay. And uh, leaf peeping, <laughs> which is a real phrase people in this country really say it and people in this country really do it they go leaf peeping well we head up in colorado where
1: i live we head into the mountains to to see the aspens to see the changing of the aspens and people around this time of year make well coming up in a little bit i suppose but um make small talk about where best to go for the aspens and these kinds of things and um, we're we are shaping up at we're shaping up. I just read this. We're shaping up for a great year of aspens, which I've heard a few times at the car pickup line and things like this. But it's because we had some big, big, big rains this year. So the uh, the aspens, the gambrel oak, or whatever it is, um, these are going to be beautiful this year.
0: Which uh, which is to say, uh, yes. Okay. So in answer to the the fundamental the idea of I mean, getting do in I have car- to go
1: to New England? No, but Can I, I mean, do it you, right here. You travel.
0: This? You you make dedicated trips for the simple and sole purpose of observing leaves in a different location and their colors
1: yeah i mean have you ever gone have you ever gone to see the changing of the aspens no it's a very great thing and do you know something about aspens ed that you might want to know um you know a lot of people a lot of people think don't know this but when you see an aspen grow you've seen aspens you know what i'm talking about yes it's a tree right well <laughs> uh when you see a, it is it, when you see a, a grove of aspens when you see a grouping of aspens what you're actually looking at is a singular organism with a variety of shoots um, that aspens have a... Are, They're like the mushrooms. Aspens, they
0: have a central underground thing. Yeah, and aspens
1: are not... An aspen tree is not an individual. He's a part of He's a part of a living colony. That's interesting. Okay. That, yeah, right? that,
0: That's mm-hmm. interesting.
1: Cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. But you, yeah, you're going to get in the car and you're going to drive somewhere else to look at the leaves somewhere else. As and they those
1: colonies, over. even while individual trees rise and fall, those colonies can live for thousands of years.
0: Well, I mean we don't know that.
1: We do. We can look at the rings.
0: Oh, really? You can but you said the individual ones come and go. Individual so. trees
1: rise and fall, but you can you can age a root system.
0: Oh, can you? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Uh moving swiftly on. Um how do you feel at apple cider, JD? Fine. Really? Yeah. I I'll be honest with you. I mean, so I I tripped up on this a couple of times in this country because obviously in the UK apple cider is
1: yeah like it, hard cider or it,
0: like yeah it's not that. well that's not it's not considered hard cider it's just that's the only possible definition of the word is that it is the a clarified drink mate with alcohol a fermented apple drink yeah it is a, it is the fermented pressed apple juice of the I mean and it's lovely but I mean over here I remember it's like oh would you like apple cider yes please and you get just like this is just like sort of vegan apple juice like why, why would what's the point of this I don't understand <laughs> I,
1: who it's wants good. this I, it's fine it's fine apple cider is fine it's, but yeah. we make our we make our Thanksgiving uh,
0: turkeys. Uh, my wife brines the turkeys in apple cider. Sure, so, uh, uh, and brining it in apple cider. I totally, get, apple cider vinegar is an excellent thing. I'm not saying anything. I just don't understand good. the why. Why people want to drink apple cider that is not actual apple cider, which is basically beer made from apple juice. I do. I not It doesn't. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's it's odd. I find it odd. Okay. Um, hay rides, JD. Wagon of loose hay pulled by a horse, like at night
1: with the stars. Sure. Bale of hay stacked on a on a platform trailer behind a tractor. Yeah,
0: I don't get it. it. To me, it's right up there with leaf peeping. Like, what what am I supposed to be getting out of this experience? I'm. Well, it's night. You're looking at the stars. Okay, but you're why is that? Why I like looking at the stars at night. To be clear, I enjoy girl. that. I, you've How got is a that?
1: Listen, you're there with your girl. You've got a blanket. She thinks it's romantic.
0: There there's like 20 other people, not to mention the guy
1: driving that thing. Oh, a pr- you only want a private hayride, for God's sake. I mean, anything else would be immoral. Um, but it's not private. Somebody's driving the thing. Well, sure, but someone's driving a horse-drawn carriage, too. So you're still allowed to make out.
0: Uh, uh, very weird. Okay, I'm understanding why you're saying yes, but I'm still under the you
1: enjoy, like You enjoy some warm cups of cider with your lady, you know, with a blanket and the hay and the stars. It's very lovely for her. Do you understand? And so that's nice.
0: No. I don't you don't understand.
1: actually have to make out on the hayride. I feel bad saying that now, but it's nice to, for your wife to think that it was nice.
0: I don't think my wife would think it was nice. I think my wife would think I, I was think insane. You, I,
1: I think your wife has spent a lot of years wondering when you're going to take her on a romantic freaking hayride. I I she's strongly doubt that. But. Didn't you notice all those hayride-themed romantic novels she has strewn about the house? Romance novels <laughs> she has strewn about the house. Could that be a hint, Ed? She's constantly watching these sort of sanitized hayride movies on the Hallmark Channel. What, what do you think is going on there?
0: Mills and Boone hayride. Take, yeah, yeah.
1: take your wife, before she reads another Harlequin hayride novel, you take your wife on a hayride. Get uh, a babysitter. This is, uh, fully. Um, Bring some spiked cider.
0: <laughs> all right. Fine. Say the leaves look nice. All right, all right, all right. Thank you. Um, leaf blowers, JD. Now why can't you just rake? Exactly, leaf blowers are the worst. I every they are <laughs> I mean, the worst. Well, no. I'm sorry. No, we are living in a society, and what kind of person starts up a small jet engine and then just patrols the perimeter of their neighbor's properties, just you know, ruining whatever they are doing, their ability to concentrate, waking the child up from the nap, spoiling a podcast recording session. I mean, it's. I'm sorry, it's wrong. It's just wrong. JD, do I lean over my neighbor's fence and blare an air horn at him whenever he's trying to do something? No. No. You know why? Because we're living in a society. It's not hard. Use a rake, people. And, you know, it mm-hmm. is not acceptable to start a leaf blower after 6 p.m. Uh, also, just like let's... This, let's sounds, this, sounds like, this sounds like a very particularized experience.
1: Like I think of leaf blowers in the abstract and not very often. But you, I think of them like in the particular is, and nearly daily. Well, sir, be assured that I will pray for you about that. All right. Um, pie eating contests. Isn't that that a summer thing?
0: Is it? I just assumed it would be a county fair thing. Like if you've got pie making competitions, why wouldn't you have pie eating
1: competitions? I tend to think that a county fair is kind of a summer thing too. Unless it's like, yeah, you know, a
0: Harvard. Well, I mean, I suppose in theory, I'm going to one this afternoon, I hope. It's still summer, though, for what it's worth. It is, its is. It, you're right. Autumn doesn't begin until next year. But, I mean, pie is autumnal, so the eating of pie should also be autumnal. No, and therefore, the I competitive eating of pie should also be I autumnal. I guess I kind of find the hot dog interest-
1: watching thing interesting, and I think I've probably talked about that on the show. But messy, performative eating it disgusts me, actually. It disgusts really? me. Yeah, I, I didn't know how strongly I felt about it until I started contemplating it. But my guess is that in a pie-eating contest, you have sort of people with their hands tied behind their back, mowing into blueberry pies with disgusting, messy faces and just gluttony and all its empty works and promises. And it just strikes me as disgusting. I'm sorry. No. Well, i was sorry that the... The, the customs
0: of the peasantry don't meet no, with your approval, No, I'm
1: perfectly JD. fine, as I say, with the hot dog thing and many other customs. Apple. You no, know, the hot dog the,
0: eating color, that's just obscene.
1: But the thing where you stick your uh, mouth into a barrel of apples, a barrel of water, and a, you know, with a wet apple eating thing. That's fine. Bobbing me, for apples, is that what you mean? Bobbing for apples, yes. But the hot dog, excuse me, the, the pie thing, I, I just, it, it's it's like, it's like, look, it, it's just a celebration of of, of gluttony that Maybe there's
0: some self-loathing in here, I don't know, but I I got an issue with all of this. I don't there's there's no there's no coherent way of suggesting that you're fine with a hot dog eating competition and not a pie eating competition, but okay. You can't claim one is gluttony and one is not. I could go I could talk a lot more about this because actually as I think about it, I have
1: certain feelings about this that I realize are kind of rooted in my perception of I, I think they're very different. I think a hot dog eating contest and a pie eating contest are very different for a variety of reasons that I'm not going right. to
0: elaborate I, on right now. I actually need to go to a county fair, but we are going to be revisiting this topic because I want to hear. I, I want to lay bare whatever tortured no, you don't. divide what? is in your soul at, at the root of this bizarre arbitrary distinction you are drawing. It's not I find arbitrary this- in the slightest. okay uh, no, pie I, eating GD, contest is disgusting. I want to know. I
1: uh, Have I want some you- dignity. For God's sake, have some dignity. Eat your pie with a fork. (laughs) Well, Ed, speaking of dignity, this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the Harmel Academy of the Trades. Whether you're interested in a one-year gap year program or a two-year apprenticeship track program, Harmel is a community of work, prayer, and study where men seek holiness through high-demand skilled trades. It's a great way for young men to get started in life by finding God in their daily work, and you can check them out at harmelacademy.org. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and J.D. Production. I'm your host, Pillar Editor-in-Chief J.D. Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner, Ed, the pie eater himself, Condon. And we'll be back next week to talk about my deep seated neurosis.